We're looking at Luke chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 36, as we continue to see this wonderful gospel unfold before us under the meticulous organization of the gospel writer Luke. And uh, as he is preparing this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> for the benefit of Theophilus, a nobleman, and then pre predominantly for the Gentile population, uh, that he is writing to. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm, allergies are just doing their thing. So I, now I have some water right there. <clears throat> but um, as we prepare to look at this passage here, a very interesting segment in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, one that has always captured my attention, and certainly I believe will yours, if not already. But... Um, you know, think about the life of John Newton. He lived from 1725 to 1807, so that predates us. Thank you. Um, he was a former slave trader, infidel, uh, libertine, once an enemy of God. And he was gloriously and magnificently saved by the grace of God. But, um, and it was through God's grace and his sincere faith in Jesus Christ that radically changed the life of John Newton. In fact, so much so that it had, he had these words etched on his own tombstone. Quote, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ reserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had so long labored to destroy. We all enjoy the song that he made famous, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. And realizing that John Newton at one time was absolutely committed to the slave trade and participated actively as a captain on one of the slave ships that hauled the African slaves from down in the uh, uh, continent of Africa up into the Western European area, and knowing that God got a hold of his heart. And through the powerful message of the gospel, and God stirred up a powerful storm one night at sea that got John Newton's attention and riveted his heart towards the message of the gospel, and God radically changed him. And, and through those words, he talks about and remembers the amazing grace of God. Nothing gives evidence to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ like a radically changed and transformed life. And the scripture is replete with all many different illustrations of individuals that you know, I know, that as we think about them, we have to see what a powerful change, what a miracle God did in the lives of those like Saul of Tarsus, uh, an enemy of the gospel, a, a blasphemer and, and a hater of the early church. And yet God got a hold of him and Saul of Tarsus was gloriously transformed to become one of the greatest gospel um, a messenger, as if you will, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's Levi, as we have seen already in this portion, or in, in the Gospel of Luke. Levi, who was the tax collector, 
and working for the Roman government, considered to be a traitor by his people. And God changed his life and made him one of the disciples to follow after Jesus Christ. And even another tax collector, in fact, a chief tax collector, if you will, a regional supervisor, if you might, a manager, Zacchaeus. When Jesus visited his community, and then not only that, visited his home. And there, the powerful message of the gospel transformed Zacchaeus into an absolutely different person, a child of God. The Samaritan woman at the well, a woman who had a, a, a questionable reputation, and uh, Jesus confronted her with love and with grace. And through the powerful message of the gospel, this woman became a proponent for the gospel in her own city, in her own town there. We think about the Gerizim demoniac, a man whose life was just riddled and ridiculed and, and, and uh, dominated by, by powerful demonic forces. And yet, you know, encounter with Jesus Christ changed his life radically. And so on and on and on and on. Nothing gives more evidence to the power of the gospel than a, a miraculously transformed life. And so this morning, as we look at chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, Luke records for us a dramatic transformation in the life of an unnamed prostitute. We don't know her name. There's no indication. But yet we know about her from this very detailed recollection given to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the gospel writer Luke. So I'm going to invite you uh, in your Bibles to join me as I read through uh, verse 50, beginning in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of, of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped, wiped them with, her, with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this. He spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denaria, denaria and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who, whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. When he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your home, your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You, you did not anoint my head with oil, 
But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon this portion of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the glorious privilege of holding in our hands and harboring in our hearts the true and living word of God. We thank you, Lord, for making it possible for her, us to have free access to your word. We ask that you forgive us for taking it for granted. As we look at this portion of Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, this very dramatic and gripping and powerful story of the life of an unnamed woman, Lord, there's much for us to learn here. For those of us who have come to you by faith and experienced your amazing grace, as John Newton describes, and have as a result received not only salvation, but sanctification and the glorious transformation of our very lives into the children of God. Oh Lord, may we, may we glean from this lesson that which would cause us to be better followers of Christ and a more powerful witness for you. May others see Jesus in us. And we thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we look at this portion of, of, of the Gospel of Luke, this incident with this unnamed woman and this Pharisee whose name we do find out was Simon, after all, we, we see the Gospel woven through this. Maybe not actually point by point as you and I know the Gospel message, but we see the Gospel message dramatically unfold and, and, and presented here in action, if you, if you will. Remember, our Lord is... is in, He's absolutely in control. He's in ultimate control. He, he is sovereign. He's providential. And he is a sovereign God. So everything is under his control. None of this is happening randomly and catching Jesus off God. He is orchestrating events to teach a powerful lesson. I think it's interesting as we look at the design. First of all, we look at the design, the, the, the irony of the, of the Pharisees' de devious plot. It's important that, that we understand what was behind uh, this Pharisee's heart. On the surface, it looked like a nice social gesture. Why don't you come on over? And obviously, it was some type of a banquet because they were all seated around the table. And so this invitation seemed like it was a good gesture on behalf of someone that was potentially one of Jesus' adversaries. But as the story continues to unfold, we realize that his plot was pretty devious. In fact, in verse 39, after the woman had come into the place, we know that Simon begins to reason to himself. He's speaking to himself. This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. You see, probably, like most of the Pharisees at that time, Simon, the Pharisee, has, he's, he has an agenda. They're out to try to, to, to expose Jesus. 
to, to show him to be the false prophet that he really is. And that they're absolutely jealous and, and somewhat intimidated by his popularity amongst the multitudes of the people. And so not only is he on this, this uh, de devious plan to somehow to catch Jesus off guard, but also he's working to advance the cause of, of his fellow peers, the other Pharisees, the scribes, those who by this time are, are very much against Jesus. In fact, if you were to go back in your Bible to chapter 6 of Luke and look in verse 11, after the healing of the man with the withered hand there on the Sabbath, and they thought for sure they had set a trap for Jesus, and Jesus turned it back on them, as he often did. Luke tells us in verse 11 of chapter 6, but they, the Pharisees, were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In fact, if you were to look at Matthew's version of that same incident in Matthew chapter 12, verse 18, it went further to say how they might destroy him. So you see, he's working with a, a corporative group of Pharisees. They're all out to somehow trap Jesus, and this scheme is, is unrelenting. And so what we see here is a, another potential trap for the Lord. But you see, they don't understand. He's God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He reads Simon's mind. Now, on the other hand, in contrast, look at the, the ingenious design of Jesus in, in all of this. Because while Simon is determined to somehow trap and discredit Jesus, Jesus, unbeknownst to this clueless Pharisee, has got his own plan. In fact, he teaches a parable beginning in verse 40 that teaches the powerful story of the message of the gospel versus the superficiality of religion in that day, Judaism in particular. See, Jesus captures the moment. You see, look at verse 41 as he's teaching this parable. He says, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors one owed 500 denarii, which is equivalent of a year and a half salary, and the other 50, which is equivalent of two months' salary. And when they both had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more? And he said, you have rightly judged. So Jesus is using this moment to show, to, to reveal to this Pharisee, this self-righteous religious Pharisee, that he is in just as much spiritual need as this woman who had many sins. And so Jesus is doing this out of compassion that he might reveal to this blind, spiritually blind religious leader how much he needs God. But also he's demonstrating to him that through his self-righteousness, his love wanes in comparison to the love demonstrated by this woman. Those who realize how sinful they are, those who realize how absolutely much they need the Lord and his forgiveness, those are the ones who respond with great love and gratitude. And there are many people in our society today Many individuals sitting in church pews today 
who fall in the same trap of that Pharisee and those of his kind. People who rely upon their religion. People who, who wear their religious labels. Who, who go through the practice of religious rituals, if you will. And, and, and by that, justify to themselves that they have a true personal relationship with God. When the fact is, they don't. They're still, still spiritual debtors. What separates this lady, this, this woman, from Simon? As we look here in... Uh, well, I, yeah, let me just take you back into chapter 6 because I, I was pondering... What prompted this woman to take these measures? Something has happened in her life. Back in chapter 6, you remember when Jesus was coming down off of the mountain and got to the, the plateau and he began to teach what we know as the, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. And, and, and before that, it says that there was a whole multitude, a great crowd, his disciples, the 12 that he appointed, then the disciples, and then that was just a, a, a horde of others who assembled to, to see him and to hear him. And, and listen, if she was in that crowd, and let me just, let's just suggest that she was one of those in that crowd. She'd been subjected to the ridicule and the rejection of Judaism and, and religion of that day. And yet here comes this, this unusual rabbi, this, this powerful teacher, and he's saying things like in verse 20 of chapter 6, when he lifted up his eyes toward his disciple and said, Blessed are you poor. In other words, you who are poor in spirit. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are, are you who hunger, talking about spiritual hunger, yearning in the spirit, who hunger now, for you shall be fed. Blessed, in other words, extremely happy and fulfilled are you who weep now. For you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and cast your name as evil for my for the sake for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And Jesus goes on in that Sermon on the Mount. And, and exposed it, exposes that crowd to the truth of the kingdom of God. And I believe in that crowd, it's very possible that woman was there. If not, maybe on another occasion when she heard a similar message when Jesus was teaching not only, not, not the, the legalism of Judaism, not the rigors of re religious uh, rigor, but, but he was teaching the wonderful love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. And the promise of God to those who were the worst of sinners. And what you may be looking at here is a woman who is coming in response to the radical, wonderful, glorious transformation that has occurred in her life. She realized how absolutely sinful she was and how desperate she was and how much she needed what Jesus had to offer. And by faith... Remember, Jesus had said in John chapter 6, verse 37, no one comes to me, he says, but those that the Father draws to me. And so God the Father by the Spirit of God was drawing her and who knows how, how many else to come to Christ. And we look at the evidence of that as we go back here 
in this incident. And let me just offer this, this one clarification because I know there are those who sometimes get confused with a very similar account of a woman coming and washing Jesus' feet and anointing him, his head with perfume in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, verse 6 and on, in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verse 3 and on, and John, chapter 12, verse 2 and on, you'll find an account, a very similar account. But the different scholars tell us is the timing. This, even though they show similarities in the, 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 uh, the details of the stories, they're two separate accounts. This one occurs earlier in the life of Jesus' ministry, the Galilean ministry. This occurs earlier. Whereas the, the other account occurs later in Jesus' Judean ministry as he is headed towards Jerusalem and his crucifixion. In fact, it happens the, the other account actually involves the sister of Lazarus and, and Martha, Mary, who anoints. So, so the, you're talking about two separate accounts. Don't get confused by those. We're focusing on this unnamed, uh, assumingly a, a prostitute who is compelled by great love and takes considerable risks to come to Jesus. We find in her actions and in Jesus' reception we find the demonstration of a humble demonstration of the gospel. You see, the Pharisee has already clued us down there in verse 39 that she is a sinner. And, and when that term is used in the scriptures in the New Testament, it's often applied. The Pharisees and the religious crowd love to use it because it was their way of describing the worst of sinners. Let's speak of the tax collectors as, quote, sinners, or those who are just reprobate as sinners, uh, prostitutes as sinners. And if you were labeled as a sinner, you were the worst of the worst. But you know, I find great confidence in the fact that the scripture tells me, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all debtors spiritually to God. This woman knew she was a sinner. She knew her background. She knew her reputation in the community. And yet she's taken great risk in coming into this home of a Pharisee. Where she could have been immediately cast out. Nobody would think to approach a religious leader, much less come into the very uh, premises in which he lived. And yet her, her, her love is compelling her because the scripture tells us that she's heard that Jesus is in the house. And she is determined that she's going to get to him because there is within her a desire to express to him what is in her heart towards him, which gives evidence of what God has done in her life. Oh, she takes great risk not only in coming and approaching a religious leader and being in his home and then coming to one like Jesus considered to be a religious leader and actually touching him. For a woman to converse with publicly another man who's not her husband, much less to touch him, was considered to be indecent and immoral. For a woman to let down her hair in public was, was considered to be indecent and immoral. So you see the, the risk that she was, the obstacles she was willing to overcome just to get to Jesus. The most important thing driving this dear lady that day was she wanted to express to the Lord Jesus Christ 
the deep gratitude that was consuming her as a result of the awareness of her salvation. She understood the love of God. She understood the grace of God, the mercy of God. We talked about that in the lesson this morning with King David towards Jonathan's son and, and the grace and the mercy that David showed towards Mephibosheth even though he was not required to do so. And that's the wonderful reality that this woman is coming to grips with. She has eternal gratitude overflowing in her heart. How do we know that? Because as we see there in verse um, 37 or 38, she stood at his feet behind him. And in that day, in that culture, people didn't sit at the table in nice chairs propped up at the table. In that day, they reclined at a table, a table that was on the floor as a mat or maybe a low sitting table. And the guests would recline. And there would be a nice, comfortable cushion up against the table. And they would lean on that cushion at eye level with the table or, or easy reach of the table. And it was comfortable and their feet would stick out. So kind of like a, a circle. And their feet would be in the outward position. So this woman could easily slide into the room where they were, they were eating. And they were conversing, if you will. And she got to Jesus' feet. And I believe that she was swelling with such deep love and gratitude for the very one who had given her hope and given her life again that the, that the scripture says that she was beginning to, to, to weep, standing behind him, weeping. And, and in the Greek text, that, word for, that verb for weeping would be like a gushing. It wasn't like a, just a few tears. This is, this is she's... The love in our heart is pouring out in, in, in torrents of tears coming down and splashing upon the feet of our Savior, her Savior, our Lord, her Lord. And she was taking the great risk in doing that. She was consumed with this gratitude and it was manifested through her tears. And not only that, her sincere devotion to Jesus is, is also demonstrated because look what, what is happening here. She began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with, her, with a hair of her head. This is unthought of. She was so compelled by love and devotion for the Lord that she, she wanted to wash his feet. We understand why, not only just because of her love for the Lord, but Jesus had pointed out to Simon as he's contrasting the way he treated, Simon treated Jesus and this woman. He said, Simon, I, I came into your house and you didn't even do the customary, customary thing of, of giving me some water to wash my feet because people at that time wore sandals. The roads were not paved. Their feet became dirty. And it was customary when you had a guest, particularly coming for dinner, you'd give them some water to wash their hands and wash their feet or even have a slave do it. But, but he said, Simon, you, you, you didn't even do that. <laughs> he said, Simon, you, you didn't even give me the customary kiss. I know we sometimes cringe, particularly men in our culture, thinking about a man kissing a man. But, you know, in that time, it wasn't on the lip. It was a, you know, it was a, it was a, a kind and a warm gesture for a man to go up and kiss, the, you know, his friend on, on each cheek. And they would do that as a sign of, 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 of love and, and, and fellowship. And he said, Simon, you, you didn't even kiss me. That would be customary. That would just be the normal social thing of courtesy. You didn't even do that. Look at this woman. Since the time I've gotten here, she hadn't stopped kissing my feet. 
She's, she's content just to kiss my feet because of her love. Simon, you even take the time or go through the trouble to anoint my head. Oftentimes when people would come into a person's house, you know, uh, a, a good host would keep uh, a flask of some type of a, a, a aromic uh, an oil. Uh, and as soon as a person came into the house, you, you just kind of anoint them on the head with that oil and make, make them smell better. They can walk them many miles. They might, they might not smell so good. But anyway, it was just a way to kind of perfume your guest and give an air about the, the occasion. So Simon, you, you didn't even take time to anoint my head, which is just basic customary social gesture. This woman, on the other hand, comes with an alabaster, alabaster flask, which is a, a, a type of marble that was expensive, that was mined and exported out of Egypt. And, and, and she comes with a flask that's made of, of alabaster and, and with this, this good uh, anointing oil. And, and she's not anointing my head. She's anointing my feet. So you see the contrast there between the two. Simon had little gratitude. Little or no gratitude. Because you see, he saw himself as not needed forgiveness. In his self-righteous, pious, you know, religious uh, uh, attitude, he didn't see a need for this grace and mercy and forgiveness. They worked that out through their religious rituals and through the keeping of the law. On the other hand, this woman understood she was absolutely indebted to God and could never repay to God. She could never do anything on her own by her own efforts to receive God's forgiveness. And here comes the Son of God saying, it's not by works. It's by grace and faith. And what a beautiful portrayal of the gospel as we see demonstrated here in the actions of this woman and her attitude towards Jesus. Folks, it's the only way to come to the Lord. There is no room for people to come into the presence of God steeped up with their own pride and self-righteousness and arrogance as if, as if God should be proud of them because they've done this and done that and done this and they, they belong to this church or they have this record in the community. Folks, there's no room for that in coming to the presence of holy God. We'll never impress God by ourselves on our own. <laughs> There's only one way to come in the presence of the Lord, and this woman clearly demonstrates it right here. It makes me think about the song we oftentimes have sung, and the Crusades made popular, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. That's pretty much how this former prostitute saved by the amazing grace of God, by the love of God demonstrated through His Son to her, who had by that decision of faith received not only forgiveness for her sins, but understand, she has been given life. She knows it. She was a nobody. She was a spiritually dead person in the eyes of everybody in her society. She was a nothing, a tramp. And now she hears this wonderful, glorious message of the kingdom of God that says, if you are 
hungry spiritually and you mourn spiritually and you see yourself as being in great need spiritually, just come to God. And here she comes and she has taken all the risk of being absolutely ridiculed and rejected and, and ostracized and ridiculed by this Pharisee and everyone around. But you see, Jesus doesn't miss a trick. <laughs> Not only do we see the providential presentation of the gospel in Jesus' orchestration of the events that night and the humble demonstration of the gospel in the actions of this woman, but we see a strong, powerful warning based on the gospel here in this parable that Jesus is teaching to Simon and to everyone else. You see, Jesus characteristically exposed this man through a parable. Jesus had a way of doing that. He could tell a simple story and just expose people for who they were and what they were. And he reminded Simon there in verse 44, of this, uh, or rather in verse 41, of this great creditor who had two debtors. One owed him a tremendous amount. One owed him a significant amount. And yet they both could not. They had nothing. They were both absolutely uh, helpless to pay back their debt. And there's the grace of God. This, this, this wonderful, gracious uh, creditor forgives both of them of their sins. And, 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 and the woman gets it. And Jesus exposes Simon's heart here through a simple story about the graciousness of God. And the attitude and the response of these two different people tells the story. And I just ask you today, as you look at these two characters, as you see the two situations unfold there, you hear this message that Jesus is teaching through this parable. And I have you, have you thought about where, where am I in this? Am, am I like Simon that somehow I feel like that I've done the things I need to do in, in, in being religious and, and, and practicing the things that God wants me to do and doing the things, you know, uh, that, that would be pleasing to him? Is it, is it because of my works? Is it because of my religion? Is it because of my reputation that I'm favorable in the sight of God? You can be deceived just like this Pharisee. Or have you seen yourself in this woman who realized how absolutely spiritually bankrupt she was and how much she needed God's love and God's forgiveness? After Jesus had confronted Simon with the parable and, he, he, and, and on the heels of this parable, as I pointed out, he began to show Simon the difference in the way uh, that Simon treated him and this woman treated him. Simon certainly, if he was not spiritually blind, he could see that he was the person who still owed to God, but he didn't express love towards God. He had expressed nothing towards God that demonstrated he loved God and because he had no awareness of his forgiveness by God. And on the other hand, this woman had gone to great lengths to show how deeply she loved the Lord and how grateful she was for his forgiveness. And, and as we come down to verse 48, or rather, let's look at verse 47. 
Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. In that verse right there, Jesus is basically saying, Simon, she has been forgiven much because you can tell by her attitude. You can tell by the level of love that she has for me that she has been forgiven much. In contrast, you've demonstrated no love towards me. You've demonstrated no evidence that you are aware of the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. So in verse 48, Jesus said, turns and says to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? You know, that could take us back to an earlier incident, I believe it was in chapter 5, when Jesus was in the house that was crowded and the paralytic was brought by his friends and Jesus looked at that man and said in verse 20 of chapter 5, the paralytic, he saw their faith and he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven. And there was, then the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble even then. They, they were saying to themselves in verse 21, they reasoned saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They didn't realize they were telling the very truth that they were trying to deny. And Jesus performed the miracle in healing the paralytic and then confronted the Pharisees and said, which is easier? To heal a man that's never walked? So he can get up and walk and carry his pallet and go on home and be productive in society again? In other words, give him life again? Or to say your sins are forgiven. Anybody with the power to heal <laughs> miraculously has the power to forgive sins. And that is the same thing happening here in this passage that we see in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. And those in verse 49, and those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, I notice, I like how Jesus is not directing his conversation to the Pharisee or the guest. He's directing his attention focused on the very object of his heart. And that is the woman. And he says there to this woman, then he said to her, your sin, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not, not your actions. It's not you coming in here and anointing my feet. It's not you washing my, my, my feet with the tears from your eyes and the hair of your head. It's, it's not the things you're doing or have done. It's your faith. And folks, that's the essence of the gospel. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God. And this woman realized she had received one of the greatest gifts she could ever receive in all of her life. This is the wonderful message that you and I have the, the privilege to be able to take out to the community around us. There are many people who are walking in spiritual blindness who have no idea of their sinfulness. And they won't know unless someone confronts them with the truth of the gospel that tells them very plainly in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. And explain to them the awful penalty of sin. In Romans 6.23 that says the penalty of sin is eternal death, separation from God. But also give them a ray of hope and telling them the good news of the gospel, but the gift of God is eternal life. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him, faith, 
shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There are people who are dying spiritually, needing to hear the hope of the power of the gospel to absolutely transform their lives. If God could do it in a John Newton, if God could do it in a Saul of Tarsus, if God could do it in a Levi tax collector or Zacchaeus tax collector or Samaritan woman at the well or Gerizim de demoniac, if God could do it in a prostitute there in first century Palestine, then God can do it in anyone's life that you and I encounter today. There's always hope in the powerful message of the gospel. I want us to close this morning by, first of all, doing just a little bit of self-examination. I'm not questioning your salvation. I'm not trying to create doubt in your mind. I want to get to the essence of how you have responded to God as a result of what he has done in your life. What have you done? How have you expressed your gratitude to God? Have you humbly come to Him and, 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 and even risked the ridicule of others that may call you a religious fanatic or, or, or whatever, or call you a Jesus freak or something? Have you humbled yourself to come to the Lord and to express through heartfelt tears if, so, if necessary, but just to come back to the Lord and say, thank you. Thank you for rescuing me by your wonderful grace. Thank you for giving to me spiritual life when I was spiritually dead. Thank you for taking me and transferring me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Thank you for, for wrenching me from the clutches of the devil and, and placing me in the loving arms of a Father in heaven who has called me his adopted son or daughter in Christ. What is your attitude? How far would you be willing to humble yourself before the Lord and express to Him how much love you have for Him for what He's done for you? What have you done in response to Him for what He did for you on that cross 2,000 years ago? I think we have a wonderful example right here in a humble, rejected woman who was suddenly grasped up and adopted into this wonderful eternal family of God and suddenly made to be a child of God. Let's take a moment now as we close in this prayer. Father, we thank you that we can even call you Father. That's not a right or a privilege that's guaranteed to just anybody, but only to those who humble themselves confess their sins, repent of their sins, and place their faith in the one and only true hope for salvation, the only way to God the Father, and that is the Son of God, Savior of the world, Lord of lords and King of kings, Jesus Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, in your presence, we come before you at this time. Those of us who, who know in our hearts that we have received this glorious gift of salvation, as undeserving as we were and, and still are, to receive your wonderful grace and mercy and forgiveness, we want to come before you now, Lord, to express in our hearts 
our love for you, our appreciation to you, our devotion to you, because you are God and you are holy and you are righteous and you will judge the unrepentant, but you will bless those who are your children. Forgive us, Lord, for taking our salvation for granted. Forgive us, Lord, for not responding in true humility and having episodes of just absolute gratitude as we celebrate what you are to us and what you have done for us. And Lord, as a part of that gratitude, I pray that you would motivate me and motivate these, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to be consistently and, and genuinely and effectively engaging those around us as you create opportunities for us to engage and encounter others with this wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they may share in this exhilarating experience known as salvation and sanctification. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your love, your unconditional, unlimited love towards us. Thank you for your marvelous mercy towards us. And Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. And we'll give you praise and honor because you're worthy. And we thank you in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, amen. I challenge you to go even today Look for opportunities to share the powerful message of the gospel. And may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace as you go. God bless you.